0: the kernel of the good news. Um, last week, David taught through the last part of chapter 3, and he took us back to, Galatian, or to Genesis 11 through 15 and, and Exodus 19 and showed us from those passages some of the background behind the, uh, um, the arguments that Paul uses, the illustrations Paul uses. Then he took us through those arguments to show how those apply to our lives. And I don't want to try to repeat that. I uh, would not be able to do it nearly so well as he did anyway. But I would like to skim over a couple of verses at the end of chapter 3, because I think there's a point I want to emphasize that, that, that's essential for understanding chapter 4, where we're going to spend most of our time. So turn back to Galatians 3, right around 15 or so. So David pointed out last week, Paul begins by using a, an, an illustration. Basically, he says, um, once you sign a contract, you don't go changing it. Once you shake hands on a deal, you stick to the deal. And the deal God made was to promise blessing to Abraham and to his seed. Now, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So the deal was with Abraham and his seed, Christ. The promises were to Abraham and to Jesus and no one else. That's it. That's all. Well, what what about us? Where do we get in on the deal? That's fine for Abraham and Jesus, but what about us? Well, skip down to verse 26. And what, what Paul does, as David showed us last week, is argues that the law which came later can't undo the deal that's already been made. It can't invalidate the promise. And then he tells us a little bit about why the law is there. But at verse 26, he says, You are all sons of God. Now, how did we get that way? How did we get in on this deal? Well, let me, let me rephrase Chapter or verse 26 uh, to, to just uh, clarify a point, to emphasize a point. Uh, that Your translations are fine, but I'm just going to emphasize what he says. He says, In Christ you are all sons of God through faith. You see, you are sons of God in Christ, and you're in Christ by faith, or through faith. Look at verse 27. For all of you Who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Paul says if you are baptized into Christ, you are clothed in Christ. You are covered with Christ. You're enclosed in Christ. To baptize simply means to place into something. If you're baptized in water, you're placed in water. If you're baptized in fire, you're placed in fire. To be baptized into Christ means to be placed into Christ. So that you're clothed with Him, you're covered, you're enclosed in Christ. Now that is the simple but profound gospel. Uh, There uh, will never be anything nearly as important that I try to explain as what I'm trying to explain now. See, the gospel, the simple gospel, is that when you put your confidence in God, you trust Him, He places you in Christ. You become so identified with Christ that what is true of Christ is true of you. Let me restate that. By faith, we are placed in Christ so that what is true of Christ is true of us. That is the gospel. That's the heart of it. That's the kernel. All the rest of our Christian life is exploring and coming to understand what that really means, the implications, what the riches are that are ours in Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 29. Remember... Back in verse 16, he said that the promises were to the seed, Christ. That Christ is the heir of the promises. He is the descendant. If you've got a New American Standard, let me warn you, they do something here that I find uh, almost intolerable. I like that translation, but what they do here uh, caused me to nearly throw my copy into the uh, trash. They switch the word seed with the word offspring. But it's the same word back up in verse 16. The exact same word. It's seed. So if you have a New American Standard, listen carefully. He says, And if you belong to Christ, literally, if you are of Christ, if you're in Christ, if if, if you're part of Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, the promise was to Abraham and to his seed, Christ. Well, the gospel is... That I have been placed into Christ by faith so that what's true of Him is true of me. Therefore, I am the seed of Abraham. I am an heir to the promise. That's how we get in on it. That's how we get enfolded in. Because we are placed in Christ and what's true of Him is true of us. Therefore, this becomes true of us. We are heirs. We are the seed of Abraham. Back in verse 26 when he said, We become sons of in Christ, See, we are not born sons of God. Not all humans are sons of God. That's not a biblical concept. We become sons of God. Well, how? By faith we are placed into Christ so that what is true of Christ becomes true of us. He is the Son of God. Therefore, we are sons of God. If we've put our confidence in Him, if we've put our trust in Him, each one of you who have trusted Jesus Christ, been placed in Him, and are a son of God. It doesn't matter who you are. This applies to you. Look at verse 28. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, whether you've had a religious upbringing or this is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female, whether you're rich or poor. Whether you're, you're, you're tall, or short, or fat, or skinny, or smart, or dumb, or good, or bad, or ugly. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're in Christ. What's true of Christ is true of you. We are all one in Christ. That doesn't mean that there aren't black and white and, and oriental and Hispanic. doesn't mean that there aren't men and women. There aren't rich and poor. There aren't smarter and dumber. It just means that none of this stuff matters and the way God treats us or the way God feels about us. And none of it matters then in the way we treat each other, the way we feel about each other. Because we are in Christ. And that's the basis of our relationship with God and the basis of our relationship with each other. God loves me. Why? Because I'm so lovable. Because I'm so good. Because I'm a man. Because I go to church and read my Bible. No, 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 and no. God loves me because I'm in Christ. And what's true of Christ is true of me. Therefore, God loves me no matter what I do or don't do. God is delighted with you. Why? Because you don't yell at your kids and you stick to your diet. Because you didn't lust after the woman across the aisle. You, uh, you read your Bible and don't watch The Simpsons? No. That is not why you are delightful to God. You are delightful to God because you are in Christ. And Christ is delightful to the Father. Therefore, what's true of Christ is true of you. And you are delightful to the Father. No matter how weak or strong, how much you succeed and how much you fail. You're in Christ Christ. And therefore, you are a delight. When Christ walks in the room, God stands up with a smile on his face. He's so happy to see him. When you walk in the room, God jumps to his feet with a smile on his face because he's so happy to see you. I better uh, move on to chapter 4. You can see that I do get excited. I like this stuff, but I'm supposed to be teaching chapter 4. So that's what we're going to do now. But if you don't remember anything else I say this morning, remember that. That by faith you are placed into Christ Jesus. So what's true of Him is true of you. And start watching for that little term, in Christ or in Him or in the Beloved. I've counted so far 207 times in my New Testament where that shows up. Well, now you know what that means. Well, what's going on in chapter 4 is that Paul is expressing his current concern that these Galatians are... Are abandoning what they already have in Christ, and going backward into Judaism. See what's happened is, is some uh, some Jews from the Jerusalem Church have come to Galatia. These Jews don't understand that the key to life is being in Christ, that we become heirs. To the, of the promises, descendants of Abraham in Christ. They don't understand this. And so they're teaching these Galatians that in order to progress in their spiritual life, they have to, to embrace all of the, the trappings, the religious trappings of, of Judaism. You see, at this time, most believers were Jewish. The Jerusalem church was Jewish. They, they sang Jewish songs. They had Jewish forms of worship. Most of the leaders... Most of the mature believers still practiced Jewish customs because they were Jews. And so it was easy to, 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 to have the confusion that what most believers do, and even what most mature believers do, is what I must do in order to grow, in order to be spirit-filled, in order to, to stay in God's favor, in, 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 or, in order to mature. That confusion is easy. That's why <coughs> excuse me. it seemed obvious and logical to these Galatians that, okay, then we've got to start adopting these customs, these rules, these traditions, these regulations, if we want to grow too. But that confusion, as, as simple as it is for us to fall in, to look around and say, well, these mature believers do this, therefore I've got to do this if I want to be acceptable to God. This confusion, as easy as it is, is disastrous. It's lethal to our spiritual life, to our relationship with each other. Well, what uh, Paul needs to do is to explain to these new gentile believers what it's really like, what it was really like to live under the old system, to live under the law. So he does that by continuing his analogy of the of the heir of, of, the, of the one who inherits. Now notice in these first five verses of chapter 4, when Paul uses the term we, he's talking about Jews. He says, what I'm saying is this, that, or excuse me, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, though he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also we were children. We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. What he's saying is even though true believers within Judaism were heirs, they were recipients of the promise because they did have that relationship based on faith with God, even though they were heirs, they didn't enjoy the the, the privileges of sonship. They were under the, the, the control and the pressure, the supervision of 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 a tutor, what what J. B. Phillips calls a, a, a harsh and strict governess. You see, what the Paul uses the illustration of a of a, a Roman heir, a, a son who was going to grow up and own the whole estate. Before he comes of age, he was under the control, the supervision of a slave whose job it was to train him and teach him and keep him in line. And these slaves were often very strict and harsh and rough. See, Paul says we were heirs, but it didn't feel like that. What it felt like to be under the law, under these basic principles, it felt like slavery. It felt like bondage is the word he used. It it was terrible. It was oppressive. It was oppressing. These, these, like I said, these, uh, um, these basic, fundamental, or, or, or elementary principles that he's referring to really are the basic teaching, regulations, rules, traditions of the Old Testament. If you go back to Leviticus and read it, there are rules about how you wash your hands in exactly the right way, how you trim your beard, how you sew your clothes, how you cook your food, how you harvest your field. There are rules about what you can touch and what you can't touch, and there's all these fines for doing this or doing that. Then there are all the rules about worship. Worship had to be done exactly in the right way, at the right time, in the right order. It all was very specific and the sacrifices had to have this much of that and this much of that. And there was a sacrifice for this and another one for that. And then you had all the the holy days, the holidays. These weren't days they got off work. Well, they did actually, but these were days that they had a whole different set of rules to live by. A whole new bunch of rules for those days. Some of them they had to live in tents and they could do this and they couldn't do that. They have hundreds of rules. Sometimes read through Leviticus. And read all of the rules and how many there are and all the details of life that they cover. See, Paul said that was bondage. That was oppressive. We're always trying to think, okay, now what's the rule for this? Now what am I, can I do this or can I do that? What happens if I do this? And they're always having to, to, to try to follow all of these rules. What David pointed out to us last week was that these rules were never intended to bring people to salvation. In fact, what these rules were intended to do was to overwhelm them, to show them how utterly beyond them doing everything right is. Because, see, doing everything right is beyond us. We may get it right here, but we get it wrong here. And if we really knew what right was, we would be even more overwhelmed. And what God did was gave them a clear picture of right and said, okay, try it. And they couldn't. They couldn't even keep track of the rules, much less obey them all. And the purpose of that was to bring them to confront themselves and their need for God and to come to God and offer sacrifice and throw themselves on His mercy to trust Him. And He would save them. He would take care of them. But well, even so, they still had to live under that oppression. They still had to be thinking all the time about the rules. Still had to be checking themselves. Still had to had to be checking each other about whether or not they were living by the rules. But Paul tells us, at the right time in history, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. See, Jesus came, the Son of God, fully divine, fully God, Born of a woman, fully human, fully man. Under the law, he was born a Jew with all of these regulations on him that he had to follow, all of these rules that he had to follow, and he did it. He's the only one in all of history that did it. He was righteous. He lived according to the truth. There is a whole lot of theology right here. Because he is fully God and fully man, he could be the perfect sacrifice for us, Because he was righteous, because he was under the law and fulfilled the law, his death could count for us. Do you ever wonder how Christ's death counts for you? I wonder that. I mean, he died way back then. Death is the penalty for sin. Well, how do my sins get paid for? Well, if the gospel is what's true of Christ is true of me because I've been placed into Christ... What the scripture tells, what Paul tells us in Corinthians and Romans both, is when Christ died, I died. That what's true of Christ is true of me. So when Christ died, I died, and my sins were paid for. But anyway, Paul skims all through all of this theology. He doesn't stop and expound and explain, because he wants to make his central, important point. And that point is that the reason Christ came was to pull us out from under the law, out from under that bondage and that oppression, to bring us to the full enjoyment of sonship, to be mature heirs, not children under the, under the tutelage, under the stewardship, the, the governor, but full heirs, able to communicate with our Father, able to hear His heart, to hear His desires, and respond to that rather than to all these rules. Then he turns in verse 6 to the Galatians who were not Jews, but they were being pulled back into these Jewish rules from the Old Testament. Notice the pronoun shifts from we to you there in verse 6. Because you are sons of God, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Paul says that these Gentiles already are full sons. They already have the rights of sonship. And the proof of that was that they had the Spirit of the Son. You see, what's true of Christ is true of them. And this, this Holy Spirit is Christ's Spirit, so He is their Spirit. He is in them. And that's the proof that they have sonship. And that Spirit in them cries, Abba. Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. It's the word Jesus himself used when he addressed his father. And now they, because they are in Christ, can use that. They can address their father intimately. They can come to their father and talk to him about their needs, about their concerns, about their fears and hopes and lives. They have the privileges of full sonship, riches, all the wealth. We become heirs of God. All the wealth of peace and joy and satisfaction become ours. Then Paul reminds them that they were previously in bondage to false gods. You see, they used to live under a whole different set of rules, of, of superstitions, of taboos, things they could do, things they couldn't. But see, their old set of rules didn't come out of the Scripture, didn't come from God. So these were often very, very degrading, very destructive rules that they lived by. Often would be child sacrifices and self mutilation. Those rules were garbage. They were they were killing them, but they were still a set of rules. And Paul says, "Now that you know God, rather that you're known by God, now that you have this relationship, this intimacy with God, why on earth would you crawl back under another set of rules? It just doesn't make sense to Paul." Look at or let, let me read Ken Taylor's paraphrase of these verses. He says. How can it be that you want to go back again and become slaves once more to another poor, weak, useless religion of trying to get to heaven by obeying God's laws? You're trying to find favor with God by what you do or don't do on certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. I'm afraid that all my hard work for you was for nothing. See, we have an almost irresistible attraction to finding rules... And traditions and regulations for ourselves. We may not crawl back under the Jewish ones like the Galatians were, but we'll find some rules and regulations to put on ourselves. You see, we want the security that rules seem to offer rather than the, the vulnerability of trusting our loving Father. We want rules rather than want God. We are too afraid to really trust Him. But trusting Him is what faith is. He is our Abba. He is our Father. And the effect of rules is that our walk can degenerate into external formalism, as, as John Stott describes it. It is no longer the free and joyful communion of children with their Father. It has become a dreary routine of rules and regulation. See, it robs the good things that we would do with our Father of all the freedom, all of the delight, all of the joy. I want to spend time with God. So I decide I'm going to have a quiet time every day. That is great. That's excellent. That's good. But if I start using that quiet time as a rule to to measure whether I'm okay spiritually or I think I have to have it or God is going to be upset, He's going to be displeased with me, then it becomes sterile burden. It just becomes emptied see, I am okay, but that's because I'm in Christ and He's okay. God is happy with me, but that's because I'm in Christ and He's happy with His Son. Therefore, He's happy with me. You see, religious practices are good and fine. As long as they are helpful avenues for us to express our devotion, our love, our dependence on God. But when we start viewing them as something we have to do to gain his favor, something that's necessary to stay in touch, then they become poison. They can kill us spiritually. You may enjoy worshiping in a big cathedral with a choir and singing certain songs and praying certain prayers in a very specific way. Well, that's fantastic. Enjoy that. That's great. As long as that's the way you're expressing your love, your devotion, your dependence on your Father. But if you start thinking that it has to take place there, and in that way, and singing those songs, and praying those prayers, it'll kill you. See, and that's true no matter what traditions you attach, no matter what traditions you're used to. It doesn't matter where we worship, whether it's a cathedral, or a gym, or the basement of a tenement building. And it doesn't matter whether we sing accompanied by a choir or an organ or a piano or a guitar or a kazoo. What matters is that we are expressing our love, our adoration and our dependence on our Abba, our Father. That is what's important. When religion replaces relationship with God, it becomes an enemy. Jesus said, I have come, not that they might have religion. He didn't say that. He said, I have come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. Furthermore, rules don't work. We like them because they give us the illusion of control, but we just can't keep them. We have some behavior we're trying to stop. Some sin that's getting a hold of us or some, some some habit or some way we're relating to family or friends or work. And we want to stop it. So we, we, we put some rules on ourselves in an attempt to get control of that area. And then when we fail, we try to punish ourselves with, with guilt or fear or, or by depreciating ourselves or by rejecting ourselves. But it just doesn't work. Still, we are too afraid come to God really believing that we are delightful to Him because we are in Christ and and, and to tell Him our frustration, to tell Him our failures and to ask Him to change us, to help us, to transform us. One of the worst effects of our tendency to crawl back under a set of rules, try to fix ourselves, try to live up to what we think, God's expectations of us are one of the worst effects is what it does to our relationships with each other. You see, embracing God's love, God's acceptance in Christ breeds kindness, forgiveness, delight and joy it breeds patience, gentleness. Legalism breeds suspicion and division and and, and intolerance and hatred. Listen to Paul's heartbreak in his relationship to the Galatians in verse 12. He says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, Paul starts with an appeal to unity, to mutual acceptance. He says, become like me. I became like you. See, Paul was a Jew. Paul was used to Jewish ways of worship, Jewish songs, Jewish ways of expressing his devotion to God. But when he went to Galatia, he left all of that behind him. He went and spoke to them in their own language. And when they gathered, they gathered as Greeks, not as Jews. And and, and they, they, they learned new songs. They learned to express their devotion to God in new Greek ways and to apply the truth of the Scripture to their lives in new ways. But now that the Jews from Jerusalem had come and taught them the correct way to do it, They started looking at Paul with suspicion. They started to reject him because he was doing it all wrong. Paul says, Wait a minute. I'm not upset because you're doing it different than me. I'm upset because you've lost your freedom. You've lost your love for me. What a tragedy it is when we can't enjoy our brothers and sisters in Christ because they raise their hands too much when they worship or because they sing the wrong songs and they just do it wrong and they just don't do the right things at the right time. You know, we're not to come together to sit back and critique how our brothers and sisters in Christ express their worship. We're to come together, to join together in worshiping our common Father. I can't tell you how much delight I have had in just being able to travel around the world and gather with, with believers from other places and, and worship the Father in their own unique way. Standing in a room full of Africans who are singing at the top of their lungs and jumping up and down as they sing or, or kneeling in a, in, a, in a nearly deserted cathedral in central Mexico as, as the believers there whisper out their devotion to God. You know, most of the situations I've been in, I haven't understood a single word that's been said but my spirit is with their spirit enjoying our Father. And what a delight. That is fun. Paul reminds these Galatians that when he first came, they accepted him. See, he came from Lystra, where he had been stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. But he wasn't dead, and God revived him. He came back, and he went to Galatia. But when he came, he didn't come as a as a... Uh, commanding figure tough and strong he came weak and bruised and swollen and needy and hurting and they embraced him they accepted him they loved him and cared for him they accepted him as a messenger from God as Christ Jesus himself that's exactly what being in Christ means about the way we accept each other we accept each other because we are in Christ. See, God accepts you if you've put your confidence in Him because you are in Christ. Therefore, that's the way I should accept you. Not because of what you do or don't do. Not because of your intelligence or your lack thereof. Not because of anything else. But because you are in Christ. And now you treat me like an enemy. What's going on here? Why is this happening? Well, this is what happens when we put ourselves back under the law. When we try to win God's favor, His acceptance by following the rules, we begin to become suspicious of anybody who doesn't follow our rules because they threaten us. The fact that they don't follow our rules threatens the sense of security we are vainly seeking in rules. And because we are threatened, we respond to that threat By, by rejection, by suspicion, often by hatred, it could even be they can even be speaking the truth and living the truth and appealing to us in love, but we'll still view them as an enemy. Because that's what the law does to us. Not only do we view those who don't live by our rules as an enemy, we begin to view even those who are following our rules, at least trying, with suspicion and reserve. We pull ourselves back. We begin to treat our families that way. We begin to treat our, our spouses, expecting them to live up to standards before we will embrace and accept them. We, we treat our children that way. You now, what happens to our delight? What happens to our freedom to radically love each other? Which is what Christ has called us to do. I have no idea where I am. i got going too, too fast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, Paul then tells them about these, uh, these um, guys who had come to reteach them, these people who had come from Jerusalem. He says, they're not coming to love you. Look at, at verse 17. He says, these people are zealous to win you over, but for, no good, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided that the purpose is good, and to be so always, and not just when I'm with you. Now these are very hard verses to translate because uh, Paul just repeatedly uses this word for zeal. You have to try to figure out what he's trying to say for zealousness. Well, what's happened is these, these guys that came from Jerusalem, they were zealous, they were intense, they were tough. They knew their Bibles forward and backward. They could quote verses out of there. They could pin you to the wall with the rules and the the instructions of Scripture. They looked tough. And in fact, next to them, Paul looked like a compromiser. Paul couldn't match their intensity. And it looked like their intensity was for God and for the Scriptures and for truth. Well says that's not really what's going on, people. They don't want you to be intensely in love with the Father. They want you to be intense about following their rules. They want to cut you off from other believers so that they can control you, so that, so that you will be used by them for their own causes, for their own pride, to make them look like they are the leaders, they are the tough ones, they are the real heroes of faith. See, that's what legalism, or legalists are all about. Control their own glory as the real heroes of faith. And Paul says, man, don't be fooled. Then he says, verse 19 and 20, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. He says, I don't know what to do. So I feel like you're losing it, like we're starting it all over again. I went through this type of anxiety with you once before when I first explained the gospel to you. When I first explained what it meant to be in Christ. I didn't know whether you're going to accept it and embrace it or turn away. And now I feel like I'm going through that all over again. I'm going through that same tension, that same anxiety. It's interesting. He says, I'm going through that pain until Christ is again formed in you. See, one of the things that happens when we are placed in Christ, what's true of Him becomes true of us. His life is placed in us. We receive His life, His Spirit. That begins to change us, begins to transform us, begins to reform us into His own image. We have Christ formed in us. See, that's our hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory We cannot change ourselves, no matter how hard we try. We cannot change ourselves by punishing ourselves with with guilt and rejection. We cannot change ourselves by frightening ourselves, by listening to the accuser who says says, you'll never change, that you're only going to get worse unless you quickly, hurry, do something. It'll only get worse and worse. That isn't true. That's a lie of the enemy. You see, we have the life of Christ in us, working His way out into our thinking and into our words and into our behavior. And He will reform us into His image. He will transform us. He will renew our minds as we trust Him, as we listen and open our hearts to Him, knowing that He accepts us because of what he has already accomplished. See, many of the rules that we place on ourselves are good rules. Now, I may be struggling with lust, so I decide not to go to certain movies, not to to read certain books, not to watch certain television shows. That is good. That's healthy. That's right. Or I may want to... To use rules on myself to 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 keep myself from being so harsh with my children, or or, or more, I want to be more sensitive to to my spouse or my co-workers. That's that's good stuff. I want to spend more time with God, so so I make some plans, or some rules that I'm going to do. Get to bed by this time and do this. That's good. It's good to change our lifestyle to become. Uh, more successful at some of these things that we want to see happen. It's even good to ask other people to hold us accountable. See, there's nothing wrong with any of this. But let us never become confused and think that we have to succeed in order for God to love us. In order for Him to accept us, to be delighted in us. Let us never become confused and think that our performance Our dismal failures will cause Him to turn away from us. Let us never be confused and think that we have to or even can change ourselves in our own strength and our own power. We cannot. Again, I am accepted. You are accepted. We are accepted because we are in Christ. And Christ is accepted. And what's true of Him is true of us. Therefore, we are accepted by the Father. We are delightful to Him because and only because we are in Christ. And He is delightful to Him. We are loved because we are in the Beloved. Regardless of our success or failure or how many times we fail or how badly we fail. You see, God will never turn His back on you. No matter what you do or don't do. Because He will never again turn His back on His Son. And you are in His Son. And what's true of Him is true of you. You see, if you are in Christ, you have the full freedoms and privileges of sonship. You can come to the Father Any time, tell him your fears and frustrations and failures, your dreams and desires. You can crawl up on his lap and feel his embrace. Because you are in Christ, the Spirit of God is in you, the, the, the life of the Son is in you, changing you, transforming you, drawing you closer into that intimacy with the Father, forming Christ in your life. See, if you lose track of these things, if you turn away from these things out of fear or out of pride, then you will, like these foolish and poor Galatians, lose all of the freedoms and the joy, the delights of your inheritance. you lose all the privileges of your sonship. And Christ will once again need to be in you because you'll no longer look anything like him. If you have put your confidence in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted what he has accomplished on the cross, if you've realized that you cannot be good, you cannot control your habits, you cannot do everything right, and therefore you must turn to him And rely on his empowering, his acceptance, his strength. If you do that, then you will be placed into Christ Jesus. So identified with him that what's true of him is true of you. And you will from that point on have unlimited access to God and his mercy, his delight, his acceptance, his heart, his love. If you by faith have been placed into Christ Jesus. What's true of Him is true of you. So, let's pray. Lord, this stuff is simple, but it is so hard to hold on to. I just find myself uh, crawling quickly back under a new set of rules and and regulations. Things have to be a certain way, or I'm sure you're upset with me, I'm sure you hate me. Rather than really believing, really trusting that what you did in Christ took care of it all. that Because I'm in him, I'm delightful to you. Lord, we want to trust you like that. Remind us of these truths. Bring us back to them over and over. Silence the enemy who would accuse us and make us think that we have to, on our own power, change ourselves for you to love us, for you to accept us. Help us to silence that with the confirmation that we are in your son and you love us thank you for the 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 riches that we have especially for the spirit of your son who lives in us we just praise you and want to spend our lives exploring the riches that we already have and not abandon our inheritance we just praise you in the name of your son in whom we live and breathe and have our being amen